The message today will be a little bit different. We just had a reading that I mentioned last week, a verse that is terribly taken out of context. Um, Many Christians believe that the one who is taken is taken in the rapture and goes to heaven, when the context of that verse is the flood that took away those who weren't prepared. And so it actually is just the opposite. Those who are taken will be taken in judgment, and those who remain uh, will be those who, are, who belong to the Lord. Um, that problem of misinterpreting Scripture uh, is particularly problematic at this time of year when we're thinking about the end of time and the second coming and the Yom Kippur and, and the kingdom to come and all of those things. We, uh, we are in the series on the portions and passages, and this week I just want to use a couple of those texts because I want to address uh, context more, and hopefully that will help you and those that you are teaching the faith and your children as you are raising them up in the faith. Uh, so I'd like you to turn with me to Luke chapter 13, the gospel for this week. The gospel for this week comes from Luke chapter 13, verses 22 to 30. It's a very interesting passage, uh, one that uh, I could tie in with all the other scriptures, and uh, yet I think I would lose some people who would have other thoughts going through their heads. The text that we read in our liturgy this morning and the songs that we sang actually have some conflict in them, uh, but we don't see the conflict because the songs uh, reinforce the context that we know rather than the context of the scriptures themselves. In uh, chapter 13 of Luke, it says, He was passing through from one city and village to another, teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and not be able. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open up to us, then he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. Then you will begin to say, We ate and we drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, you evildoers. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And you will see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves will be thrown out. And they will come from the east and from the west, from the north and the south, and will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some who are last will be first, and some are first who will be last. Now, this passage is a passage that many of us have heard, and the typical Christian response and explanation of this is that this is a replacement of Judaism and the Jews, who are, who are not following uh, Jesus and have rejected him, and they will be thrown out of the kingdom. They have been thrown out of the kingdom. And now then those who come from the east and the west and the north and the south are the Christians, and they will come and sit in the kingdom. That is a 
distortion of the text and a misunderstanding of the context of this text. And while there is some reality to that explanation, it is woefully incomplete. And so I want to go through what I'm calling the story of God in the pathway of history. And I've given you that in part so you can follow along and in part so you could help me. I have to sneeze. (coughs) Excuse me. Uh, This week I was in a uh, missions committee meeting with the Orange County Southern Baptist Association. And we are working on trying to prepare uh, a, a large number of ministers, house church ministers in India uh, for their work because they are largely unprepared. And the work uh, and the training that they have been given so far is kind of the typical either really simple Bible story stuff, uh, kind of a Sunday school approach, or they attempt to give them versions of seminary classes. Uh, One probably too simplistic and the other one uh, uh, somewhat over their head and highly westernized. And so in the process of earlier meetings, I said to them, we really need to do this the way God does this. He gave Israel narratives, story, and commandments. And if we will give them the basic narrative of God's word and the commandments of God's word, all of that other stuff can be hung on it. And so I have been given the assignment of putting that story together. Now, I have done this many times when I talk about a holy God, a holy people, and a holy land. And I've done it in several classes, and I've done it in several writings. Um, But I'm trying to do it in a way now where it will uh, be able to be done, in some sense, cross-culturally for that context. So, as you are somewhat my guinea pig uh, group, I thought that this would be helpful maybe for you to get this story in place for yourself, for those who you are teaching, and for your children. And what I did was I put the entire biblical story in ten sections. Now the danger here is to jump into something like the four spiritual laws. Uh, And the story of God is the story of His glory in His creation And it focuses primarily on God. It focuses primarily on Israel, the people, and on Israel, the land. And if you get away from that story, you begin to interpret the story in another context. And so what I want to do is uh, put up what I call a clothesline that will cover the entire gamut. Uh, with just basic notions, what I've told them is we will probably need to set up a pathway and there will be ten steps along this pathway and we will then make sure that they are anchored to the pathway and then everything they learn in the Bible needs to be brought into the context of that pathway because if you are led off the path by a biblical teaching, that biblical teaching is probably wrong. And these people are being inundated by Christian groups, some well-meaning and some manipulative. And they come in there, do do their crusades, and lead these people astray uh, very seriously from this basic path. 
So I want to go over that path, and then I'll get back to the to the Luke passage as part of this uh, this message. And I'm hoping at Q and A uh, you will have some questions. But my view is that if somebody had memorized these ten steps and these ten basic uh, points, they could connect the dots with all of the rest of the biblical text and have a way of understanding what the biblical revelation is all about. Now, I'm doing this somewhat in the form of a story and a narrative. I am deliberately avoiding certain words that have a Christian uh, or Jewish connotation that leads off the path. And uh, that's problematic because you still have to use biblical words. And sometimes those words have been redefined. Uh, and that creates a problem. So let me begin. The first one, and I've tied a biblical statement to each one. I've given you the text. These are not proof texts. They are sample texts of issues related to that. So I think we have to begin with creation. And obviously we have to begin with in the beginning. Genesis 1.1. God created the heavens and the earth, including all the inhabitants of that earth. Through the sun, the moon, and the stars in the heavens, he established times and seasons. And through the plants, land, and sea animals, he established life on the earth. In creating man in his image, he expressed his glory in the creation. And this is expressed in the Bible in six days, which establishes the seventh day as a memorial of God as creator. And in placing man and woman as husband and wife in the Garden of Eden, he expresses his own relational nature of, of oneness in that context of marriage. As I've told you, Genesis 1 is not about the creation, it's about the Sabbath. Genesis 2 is not about Adam and Eve, it's about marriage. And, and that's why at the end of each of those sections, Sabbath and marriage are tied together. Those are critically important foundational pins for anyone being discipled to understand. We then go into a section of the scriptures that is really about what went wrong. And I could have called it what went wrong, but the themes are really sin, man's sin, and God's judgment. And the verse that I'm using primarily is Genesis 6-5, where God saw that the nature of man was only wicked continually. And you begin to see that pattern showing up. Adam and Eve disobeyed God in the garden. And they were judged, but they also received God's mercy and His promise. Sin then continued through Cain, who killed his brother Abel. And the Lord ultimately saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and he decided to judge the world by a great flood. But Noah found favor, or grace, in God's sight, in that he and his family were saved through that flood. But soon the evil of man was present again in the earth, and at the Tower of Babel, God judged men's sins by changing our languages and scattering us all over the whole earth to become the nations who would continually war against each other. You have to see the political problems of the world are never going to be solved because it was a divide and conquer uh, act of God. 
Uh, and we can celebrate diversity all we want, and I do, but that diversity carries also the sin of man who wars with his fellow man who is also in the image of God. So we wait the day when the nations shall turn their spears and swords into plowshares. But now they turn their plowshares into swords. So that's our problem. The world is cursed. Man is scattered. Man is at war with man. And there is no hope in the world. And so we come to the third section, the calling, which I have taken from Genesis 12.1. Now the Lord said, and what we have here is God speaking to Abraham. <coughs> Excuse me. And he began the work of saving the whole creation through him. It's very important that you see salvation as the creation, not as your individual soul being saved. That idea of your individual soul being saved is not being able to see the forest for the trees. And you become the only tree you look at. And that's an error. Abraham believed God. And this faith was considered as righteousness before God. So God promised Abraham a son, which would turn into a people, a place, which was the Holy Land, and a blessing that would be to him and to all the families of the earth, all peoples. And this promise was going to be carried through his son Isaac and his grandson Jacob, who was also called Israel, and to their offspring, called the children of Israel. But the promise was delayed beyond their lifetime, and would begin as a redemption from Egypt and a gathering into the promised land. This calling of Abraham is central to all of the Bible. Old Testament, New Testament, uh, law, gospel, whatever. Abraham is the starting place for all of redemption. And then we begin to get the actual picture of God's salvation. And I call that the Passover. Now the reason I do this is that as we're working with these ministers, this will be when they will be exposed to a Seder. And later they will be exposed to the Last Supper. So that the foundation is placed ahead of the fulfillment. We have a tendency to teach fulfillment first and then backtrack everything and we get off the trail. The family of Abraham entered into Egypt under the protection of their brother Joseph. You can just see how once somebody has this story in line, you can add all the other stories into it. Okay? The danger is getting bogged down in the story. So I'm trying to do the irreducible minimum here. But God sent, uh, they later became slaves and suffered under the Egyptians. But God sent a deliverer named Moses who brought them out of Egypt by the power of God and the Passover lamb. This became the central explanation of God's salvation and a shadow or a foretelling of the full salvation to come to the whole world from the God of Israel. Very important. Salvation, Jesus says, is of the Jews. At Mount Sinai, God established His covenant with Israel. He would be their God and they would be His people. He gave them the commandments but warned them that they would not be able to do them completely because of their sin. All through the Torah, Moses keeps telling them, you won't be able to do this, you're going to get kicked out of the land. 
But then God will bring you back. But you're not going to be able to do it. God will kick you out of the land. But then he will bring you back. That is, that is a repeated story in that context. He gave them the tabernacle and the sacrifices so they could confess their sin and find forgiveness in God while they waited for God to bring total salvation. Don't tell me grace and faith are not in the Old Testament, right? They spent 40 years in the wilderness because they could not fully trust and obey God. But he stayed with them and provided for them because of his loving promise. Part of the story that we often don't talk about. Whenever God sent them out, he went with them. When they were rebellious in the wilderness, he stayed with them. He provided their shoes. He provided their food. He took care of them even in their rebellion because of his loving kindness. An important notion that even though we can't achieve the righteousness of God in behavior, he stays with us, never leaving nor forsaking us. Now, now this next section is a part that if you grew up in Sunday school, you spent a lot of time in these stories. But most people today, and certainly new converts, don't know these stories at all. And these are the stories of Israel, and so it's important to know the story from Jericho to Jerusalem. And so that's the next section. And I took the, the statement that Joshua says to the two spies that he sent in, go view the land. In Joshua 2, verse 1. Joshua prepared the children of Israel to enter into the land of promise. They conquered Jericho, where God made the walls of the city fall under his power. Over time, they took over much of the land, and the twelve tribes of Israel dwelt in the land under military judges who ruled over the people, and God also sent them prophets. And the tabernacle begins to take a lesser place. The people ask for a king like the other nations around them, and Saul becomes the king of Israel. But God chose David, a man after his own heart, to reign after Saul, and God made a covenant with David that his line would be the permanent royal line. And David united the tribes, established the capital of Jerusalem. His son Solomon built the temple of God in Jerusalem. And for a time, and this sentence is not clear here, the glory and full salvation of God were found in Jerusalem. As the height of this story comes to its apex under human sin, where the glory of God is still seen at the best it can be seen, and yet sin is still present. So we have to look then at the captivity and the scattering. And I chose the verse there, Lamentations 1.1, How lonely sits the city, uh, said by Jeremiah after the city was destroyed. Because of the sin of God's people, he removed them from the land. The temple of Solomon was destroyed and Jerusalem lay wasted. The people were scattered among the nations. Many of them were taken into captivity in Babylon and they became servants of the Babylonians like they had of the Egyptians before. God promised them though through Ezekiel that he would go with them into exile and be with them even in this judgment. He promised that he would make a new and better covenant with them and he he would change their hearts and give them his Holy Spirit. Who's he promising this to? Israel, the people of God. 
not Gentiles. After 70 years, a group of them returned to Jerusalem and rebuilt the city and the temple. And this remnant would see the beginning of salvation of God through His promised Messiah. So the majority of Israel is still dispersed, but a group of them come back into the land, and then God will do something. And I call this the good news, or the gospel. Uh, And I draw from Galatians chapter 4. In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. You have to see this as a story of Israel, and not a story of Gentiles. God had promised He would take away the sin of the Jewish people so that they could fully receive the promises made to Abraham and established through Moses. They needed a Messiah who would deliver them from their enemies and become their king. John the Baptist told the people that the promised one was coming. That promised one was Jesus. He was the suffering and reigning Messiah of Israel. He came to take away the sin of Israel and the whole world. And he will someday return as king and lord over Israel and all the nations of the earth. By his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, Jesus, as the high priest of the new covenant, made atonement for the sins of man from Adam to all the nations. He would now begin the process of restoring the heavens and the earth so that the glory of God can be seen in the whole creation. This good news needed to be told to all of Israel who were scattered among the nations and also to the Gentiles, the nations who had been scattered at Babel. Which brings us to the real meaning of the Great Commission. And obviously, the Great Commission is Matthew 28. I'm not going to draw from another verse, right? It's going to be at this point that up till now, everybody's going to be fine with the story, if you know it. But now the story is going to start fighting with church history and Christian thinking and Jewish thinking. Because those two religions are somewhat at odds with each other. Jesus prepared 12 men to be his representatives and to take his message to Israel throughout the world. Do you hear that? Not to take it to the nations. To take it to Israel because they're scattered throughout the world. When he said, now go and make disciples of all nations, he's not saying turn Gentiles into disciples. And the way we know that is the book of Acts doesn't have them doing that. In fact, when Gentiles start becoming believers, they don't know what to make of it. They thought they were supposed to go into the world, find the dispersed of Israel, and bring them back for the kingdom. And make disciples like themselves. We've interpreted the Great Commission as the message coming to us. We'll see that that's not exactly the meaning of that that text, though it's in there. These men and other disciples of Jesus received the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. The good news... And the process of discipleship began among the people of God, Israel. Through Peter, and especially through the Apostle Paul, this message also began to be accepted by many Gentiles, non-Jews. This was predicted by the prophets who told Israel that the Gentiles would join them and worship their God. Paul calls this inclusion the mystery of Christ. 
Paul makes a big deal that he knows something that other people don't know. And that is that the Gentiles are going to be fellow heirs with Israel, not a replacement of Israel. So you have to see this message going to Israel and also to the Gentile, which is exactly what Paul says. Within a few years, the second temple and Jerusalem were again destroyed. The Jewish people now are dispersed among the nations and most of them remain in the diaspora to this day. The Gentiles who followed Jesus were also scattered and the good news has been taken into all the earth. The Apostle Paul says that this good news is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. At the present time, there are Jewish believers and Gentile believers found among most of the nations and the languages of the world. Missionaries are bringing the message to those who remain. Those who believe gather themselves into groups called congregations to worship God, disciple their children and converts, to assist each other as a community of faith, and to reconcile their relationships toward love and unity while they wait for the regathering of God's people, Jews and Gentiles, into the kingdom to come when the Lord returns. This gathering is called the Day of the Lord. These congregations are small households, like they will be there in India. Larger communities of faith that are united by the good news of Jesus, the Holy Scriptures, and the Spirit of God. It is at this point that the story gets really blurry in Christianity. Because the denominations in ignoring Israel or denying Israel created a replacement theology that alters the perspective from this point in the story. So we have to be careful. I have quit using the term rapture and to some extent using the term resurrection, uh, though I will talk about the resurrection, I have begun using the term the gathering because it is in, in the prophets this reference to gathering Israel and Isaiah says he will gather others to them. And so the gathering, and even Paul says, I beseech you by the coming of our Lord and our gathering unto Him. Right? Uh, we tend to think of rapture gathering to Him in heaven. It's not going to happen in heaven. Acts 1, 11. I love this verse. I've got to stop for a second. This is the verse on, on uh, Mount of Olives. Jesus blesses His disciples and He starts ascending up into the clouds. And they're watching him, and he, he's taken in the clouds, and then two angels show up. And they say, what are you looking up there for? This same Jesus who was taken will come back in the same way that he left. And they had to be thinking of Zechariah. In that day, he shall set his foot on the Mount of Olives, and it will split open. Right? So... This is a Jewish message to Jewish people who know the scriptures. It's not a message to American Christians who pull verses out of context. After God had glorified himself, oh, sorry, as we move towards the time called the day of the Lord. And by the way, the verse, this is the day that the Lord has made, is in reference to it. If you want to make it about today, that's okay, but that's not its meaning. 
The day of the Lord is when the Lord will finally bring all things to its culmination. We are approaching the restoration of all things. This will be preceded by a pattern that follows the time in Egypt and the time in Babylon. Uh, What's that pattern? God's people become persecuted. It looks like they're going to be wiped out. And then God delivers them. That same pattern is coming and we have been taught. So, human sin will increase and the people of God, Jews and Christians around the world will be persecuted and suffer. At the appointed time, Jesus will return. He will raise the righteous dead and transform the living believers. That's what we call the rapture. He will gather the living and resurrected people of God together and return to Jerusalem as king to restore the kingdom to Israel and to rule the nations with a strong power. The commandments of God will be the rules of life during that kingdom period. And Israel will be the head of the nations, and the believers will also rule and reign with him. The temple will be rebuilt, Ezekiel describes it for us, and it will be a gathering place of prayer for all people, which is what Isaiah said. And if they don't show up, Zechariah says, they won't get any rain. So God will enforce his commandments. Satan will be bound and sin will be held back so that the whole earth will be like the Garden of Eden and the lion will lie down with the lamb and it will reflect all of God's glory. This part of the story has been completely denied historically by the church in what's called amillennialism and compartmentalized by the Protestant world in what we call dispensationalism. In amillennialism, Israel's done and the church is now the new Israel and Jesus is reigning in heaven and ruling the nations now and they just don't know it. And in dispensationalism, we're in the church age. God is done with Israel. He's going to make us disappear and then Israel's going to catch hell. Because obviously we won't. And then when they've suffered again, we'll come back. And say you should have been one of us. Okay? Both of those are misconfigurations of of these events. Ultimately, God will restore the kingdom to Israel. And Israel will be the head of the nations. God's glory will be seen from his temple. And this world, this creation, will demonstrate as much as possible... In a mortal context, even though we at that point will be immortal, uh, all that God created it to be. But that's not all. There's another piece of the story. The new creation. (coughs) Boy. Isaiah 65, 17. Behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth. After God has glorified himself in this present creation, this world will have one last return of sin by mortal man. And the present creation will be destroyed by fire. Not a flood this time, by a fire. God will judge all those who lived based on their works and based on the gospel. The judgment, and we have the imagery back in the little uh, uh, corner unit. Uh, The judgment will be the book's of what we've done, and then the book of life. 
Those worthy of death will be sent to the lake of fire. Those worthy of death but have believed the good news and names are written in the Lamb's book of life will enter into life with God. And God will then bring about a new creation. The new creation will have a new heaven and a new earth. It will include a new Jerusalem but no temple because the Lord will dwell with us directly. Mankind will be one new man that is neither male nor female, slave nor free, Jew nor Gentile, and we will not reproduce and there will be no marriage. We will be as the angels are, Jesus says. We shall be conformed to the image of God's Son and live in a world without sin or sickness, tears or death. And until then, we are to anticipate first the kingdom to come and then the new creation that will be revealed. This is the part that gets blurred. A lot of stuff related to the New Jerusalem gets pulled into the kingdom. People say somebody died and they're walking the streets of gold. That's not true. Uh, We have created a blur of all of this that creates no need for a restored kingdom and a new creation. And we need to put that part of the story back into the text. Which brings us back to Luke chapter 13, verse 22 to 30. So what we have in Israel is Jesus, a rabbi, speaking to Jewish people. There are no Gentiles here. If there are, there are very few. And as he's passing through the city and the village to another teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem, which will be destroyed, someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? Now what's he talking about? He's talking about Israel. Is only the remnant of Israel saved? How do we know which of us are the true Israel? How do we know that the promises made to Abraham will be the promises we receive? He's not asking of, how do I know I get to go to heaven and make heaven my home? He's not asking that question. And Jesus says, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able to enter. What he's saying is, now is the time of salvation. Today is the accepted day. Humble yourself now before God. Seek God's ways. Follow Him. And you will enter in through that way. We know who that way is. That way is Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. But he's telling this man, you need to do this now. You don't want to wait till later. Because later there will be a lot of people striving to enter and will not be able. Now remember what Jesus says? This is going to be as the days of Noah. What happened in the days of Noah? Noah's building the ark, right? He's telling people that judgment is coming. He's telling them that they can be saved if they will get in the ark. And they mock him. And then the day comes... When he enters into the ark, and the Bible says, God closed the door. And then what did they do as the rain is following? Hey, let us in. Too late. 
Now was the accepted time. You work on your spiritual life now because there's not going to be a wide open door at the end. That door as it closes gets narrower and narrower and narrower. And so he says... Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door, you will stand outside and knock on the door, saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. Then you will begin to say, we, we ate and drank in your presence. And you taught in our streets. Even today there are many in Israel who will acknowledge that Jesus was a good teacher among them. Is that good enough? Not good enough. He is both Lord and Christ. He is both Lord and Messiah. And the struggle in the Word is to see Him for who He is. We have done a terrible job of expressing Him to Israel, and many of them only want Him on the periphery. He will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, evildoers. Now, how do we know an evildoer? Is a person who follows the commandments of God an evildoer? Nope. There is in Israel a call back to Torah. This is why my ministry to Jews is to get them back to Torah and then to the prophets and then to the Messiah. If we bring them to the Messiah, we bring them to this Jesus we have created who's not connected to any of their contacts and he doesn't make sense to them. Back to the Torah, back to the prophets and then the law and the prophets speak of who? Jesus said. They speak of me. In them you think you have life. And these are they that speak of me. The pathway needs to be done appropriately or we mess things up. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That has one connotation and one connotation only. The lake of fire. And you will see Abram, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom. But you yourselves, he's talking to Jewish people, you yourselves will be thrown out. Well, we're the promised people. I have a covenant with you. You're not keeping your covenant with me. You're not even trying to keep your covenant with me. And then the Gentiles usurp the covenant. But they will come from the east and the west and the north and the south. Who? The Jews who love the law of the Lord and wait longingly for His Messiah. Because they know the Messiah will ultimately bring the salvation and the restoration. And Paul says, how will they hear? If no one goes. How beautiful are the feet of those. Who bring the good news. Of peace. Not condemnation. We have twisted. The biblical text. Those who come from the east. And the west and the north and the south. 
and will recline at the kingdom of God are going to be what Paul calls the whole house of Israel. The living and the dead when he gathers them together. And according to the prophets, there will be ten of us for every one of them. Be a large number of Gentiles who will come, but we're going to the house of the God of Jacob. And the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Okay? We're not going to heaven. God's going to fulfill all the promises He made to Abraham. Israel will be as the stars of the sky, as the sand of the sea. And the children of Abraham will include the circumcised and the uncircumcised, us Gentiles. And the land will be like a garden of Eden from from the tip of Egypt all the way to Baghdad. That's the land that was promised to Israel. And it will be like a garden of Eden. It will be beautiful and they will live at peace. And the Lord's glory will be seen in the temple. And Jews and Gentiles, Isaiah says, will both sacrifice at that altar. And the Lord will dwell with us in this creation restored. And then ultimately we will dwell with Him forever in the new creation. When Jesus came, when He took that cup and He said, This is the new covenant in my blood. He started that covenant with Israel and He began in the resurrection the new creation. And both of those are part of the story as we move forward. And we need that story told to our converts. And we need that story told to our children. And every Bible verse and every Bible study that you have that doesn't fit this line is probably got the emphasis on the wrong syllable. Not that it's wrong, but that it's misleading. We have to be clearer as the time gets more difficult. Because our children and our grandchildren are going to live in a time that may be like Egypt and like Babylon. We have up to this point lived pretty fat and sassy in this country. We can worship how we want. We can worship bizarrely. We can, we can copy the world and have Christian versions of everything the world has and they don't care. They're starting to care. I don't care that we do things their way. I care that we do it His way. And we need to get back to clarity on what that story is. So while there will be all Israel saved and remnant from the nations, a large number of Israel and a large number of the church will say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do great things in your name? And he will say, depart from me, I never knew you. You were doing your thing. You are not doing mine. We need to teach that to ourselves and we need to teach that to our children. Let's pray.